Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good evening. Welcome to today's program with PEN America CEO, Suzanne Nossel. I'm Jasmine Darznick, a novelist and a professor of English and creative writing at California College of the Arts and a great admirer of PEN America. I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's program. I am joining you today from Marin County, just outside of San Francisco. Suzanne is the author of the new book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, and the CEO of PEN America, which uses the written word and literature to protect free expression and human rights in the United States and around the world. At this challenging time in American history, as the country juggles numerous domestic crises that tear at our civic fabric, I can't think of a more timely and important topic to discuss than freedom of speech and a more inclusive public culture. These topics aren't easy to talk about, and I'm very glad that we have Suzanne here to guide us through some of them. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I am here to talk about your new book, which is sun's beaming down, but absolutely fantastic. And I had not um, really seen a book like this, and I'm so grateful for its appearance at this moment. Um, We're going to be talking mostly about the book, but I thought, actually, I first wanted to ask you about PEN America. Uh, I immigrated from Iran, so I know of PEN really through its work with writers around the world. Of course, I've um, paid attention greatly to the to the work they've done inside of Iran and the Middle East. And I just wonder if you could tell us historically, what has that nexus been between Penn's work in outside of the U.S. and within the, within the U.S.? And how has that changed over time? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for asking. And it's, it's sort of a timely question for you to pose, because right now we're in the middle of a fierce campaign for uh, Iranian writer and human rights lawyer, Nazreen Sudadeh, who's been on hunger strike for more than a month and is sort of uh, in, in grave danger uh, in terms of her, her, her health and survival. She's protesting the fact that Iranian prisoners uh, under the COVID crisis ordinary criminals by and large have been given leniency and uh, allowed to, Leave prisons, uh, you know, on a, a health health dispensation. But political prisoners, such as herself, are being held in unsafe, unsanitary conditions, uh, vulnerable to the pandemic. And she's protesting for the release of all political prisoners. And we've been uh, doing a petition campaign and engaging a lot of high level people like Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton to speak out right now uh, on her behalf. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. So that work that you speak of that's sort of the traditional heart and soul of Penn on behalf of imperiled writers around the world who are punished harshly for speaking their minds continues apace. And, you know, if anything, in this climate of resurgent authoritarianism around the world, there's more of it to do in more places, uh, in places where we didn't used to have to do as much work, including Turkey and the Philippines. Uh, but we have adapted our mission. We've always done some work on the United States, although I'd say PEN America, you know, by and large was a group of writers here in the United States who felt they needed to 
speak out on behalf of those around the world who suffer for what we here in this country have historically done freely. But uh, four years ago, it, it became increasingly apparent that so many of the values that we stand for as an organization really were coming into jeopardy here at home in our own country. And so we have recalibrated our mission while we continue all of our international work. We have also focused on issues of press freedom here in the United States, the crisis in local news with so many news outlets across the country shutting their doors or slashing their newsroom staffs uh, because of the loss of advertising revenue, uh, issues like just today, issuing a statement about the criminal prosecution now lodged against not just John Bolton for his book about his experience as the White House National Security Advisor, but also uh, with subpoenas to Simon & Schuster and to his agent. Uh, We also have a, a robust program focused on free speech on college campuses, where we worry about a rising generation that is increasingly alienated from the idea of free speech. And that's sort of what gave a lot of the inspiration for this book. So I encourage listeners to take a look at our website, pen.org, and get involved. Become a pen member if you aren't already, uh, because uh, our agenda is is big and we need all the help we can get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, it. it- it, really, it certainly feels that these issues have felt increasingly an issue here in the United States, and I feel, you know, a, a kind of horror of recognition and seeing um, the increasing sort of atmosphere of intolerance around free speech here in the United States. Um, I want to talk about your book mostly, as I said. Let me start out by asking kind of big question is why this book now? Sure. I mean, it does go back to these conversations that we have had at college campuses across the country over the last few years, where we've become increasingly concerned about a climate of censoriousness. And we see this in incidents like protests over people like Condoleezza Rice being invited to give commencement speeches and having to pull out because there is such a climate of hostility toward their presence that they can't even go through with the appearance uh, and and get deliver message to students. Students calling for trigger warnings on syllabuses that alert them to material that may be uncomfortable uh, or induce some kind of trauma. Uh, safe spaces, the idea uh, that some students have advocated that The campus should be an environment where people are protected from ideas that may make them feel, you know, they would call it unsafe. I would think of it more as uneasy uh, or put into an awkward position or uncomfortable. And we began to hear more and more about those arguments being made on campus and clashes that were happening at places like Yale and the University of Missouri over these issues. And as we went around, you know, and our instinctive response, I'd say, as a free speech organization was, 
you know, this is pretty outrageous. You know, these students are turning their backs on the very role of a university as an environment for the free flow of ideas. You know, college is supposed to be the place where your notions get tested. You know, you're staying up all night uh, debating with your dorm mates or in the college dining hall with that give and take, confronting people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, and ideologies. And why are these students backing away from that and regarding it as something uh, uncomfortable, uh, cringe-inducing, as opposed to you know a, a robust, energizing part of their education? And so that was our instinctive response. But then as we went around to college campuses and did workshops at places like Middlebury and UC Berkeley, where there have been major outbreaks of violence in those two instances, uh, UVA Charlottesville, we heard something pretty different that made a big impression on me, which is really that for most of these students who uh, resort to calls for bans or punishments on speech, their real objective is not to curtail freedom of expression. That's not what they're after. What they're after is a more equal, inclusive, anti-racist, and just society. And they're struggling with how to bring that about. How does the campus become a truly welcoming environment for students from all backgrounds? How do students from non-traditional backgrounds, whether racial background, socioeconomic background, and international background, make their way in institutions that were made for white cisgender men many, many decades ago? And I think that drive for inclusivity is admirable. To me, it's sort of the next phase of the civil rights movement. And now as a society, we're seized with this. We, you know, it's, it's what's driving the protests in the streets of our cities. But it can sometimes cross over into censoriousness. And what we found is that students kind of barely know where those boundaries lie. And they are not focused on the free speech implications of, for example, a call to discipline a professor who may say something offensive in class. Uh, they, they, they haven't thought through the risks of that, the fact that that power may someday be turned against somebody that they agree with or used to silence their own protest or demonstration on campus. And those issues really, I think, are a microcosm of the struggle we're having as a society with how to how to reconcile the essential drive toward the next phases of equity and inclusion uh, for our society as a whole with the robust protections for free speech that are enshrined in the Constitution and that, in my view, are a really essential part of who we are uh, as a country and as a people. And so what I lay out in the book are 20 principles for how we can live together in our diverse, digitized, and divided society without resorting to curbs on free speech. It's, you know, it's a fantastic book. I teach as an educator. I'm very grateful for a book like this. I think it's a good moment, too, for us all, you know, whether we're um, undergrads, um, to get a bit of a primer almost on what free speech is. I'm really intrigued by the by the structure of the book. Um, so my expectation might be that I would enter into the book with an examination of the legal history of um, the First Amendment, but it's not organized like that. Um, it's organized in in a way that I appreciated very much as a 
as someone who's a citizen and active, you know, sort of curious um, about what I might do and how I might enter into, um, as you're talking about, a more inclusive and yet um, robust exchange of ideas. So could you tell us a little bit about how you chose to structure it the way you did, um, what those four parts are, and why you laid them down in that particular order? Yeah, sure. And it was it was sort of a debate that I had. And I do lay out in the book, uh, you know, what the legal underpinnings are of free speech protections in this country, what the exceptions are to the First Amendment, because I think that's important to know as one engages in these debates. But actually, it comes sort of toward the end of the end of the book. And I begin with I, I divide the book into four sections uh, of, of principles to consider when you're a speaker. So when you're voicing your own views and opinions, when you're a listener, uh, when you're considering free speech uh, issues, and when you're debating free speech policy questions. And I, I, I offer a set of considerations for each, set, each, each scenario. And I began with the speaker and, and the very first principles about being conscientious with language, really because I was thinking about that target audience of people who have become alienated and skeptical from, of the idea of free speech and who are not interested in reading, you know, a treatise on Oliver Wendell Holmes and, uh, you know, the doctrine of uh, uh, incitement to imminent violence uh, and, and what it means to shout fire in a crowded theater to Young people, particularly today, you know, that can seem quite remote. When we have done uh, programs on campus, we've actually been advised not to use the term free speech in the title of the program. Don't call it free speech because they won't show up there. You know, that is something they consider it a conservative kind of right leaning cause. They don't consider it relevant to their social justice goals. And I wanted to frame this in a way that uh would speak to those who harbor those doubts. And so talking about conscientiousness with language and the idea that as a speaker, you have an obligation to think about who's in your audience. I mean, it's it's sort of a funny situation uh, talking with you right now, because the fact is, I have no idea who's in our audience. We can't see our audience. We don't know, you know, uh, what, how old are people? You know, what are the races or ethnicities of people? Are there men, uh, women? Uh, You know, we know none of that. But what I urge in the book is, you know, whether you're posting on social media or writing articles or speaking in front of a classroom or on television, to try to give some thought to the breadth of people that might be in your audience and how they may react to what you say. So if you're talking about a particular community disability, uh, understand how they like to refer to themselves and what kinds of metaphors or images may be considered objectionable or retrograde. I talk about, you know, the whole progression of how we talk about people with mental disabilities and this uh, kind of euphemism treadmill where over time, different terms, you know, years ago was terms like imbecile that, you know, become very offensive and freighted with negative associations. And then they get replaced uh, with terms that are more neutral, you know, that sometimes in some instances themselves over time kind of uh, take on those negative connotations. But it's something that as speakers in a world where our speech is so often 
decontextualized. We're communicating via the internet. People may not know who's doing the speaking. They may not see the quote in any kind of context uh, in terms of the give and take in which whatever you've said uh, uh, may have come up. And people can reach snap judgments. And so it's important to have that conscientiousness. And that's that's where I began the book. So just to pause here a moment, I I thought the book was very practical. I really appreciated sometimes you have charts even or many, many example examples of specific instances where, as you say, um, words have um, evolved or devolved in our language and the care we ought to take in our everyday lives in how we speak to one another. Um, as a writer, I feel like I belong to a tribe that's really attentive to language, but I I have a fear myself, and I know that it exists in many of my writer colleagues and, and friends and students, um, that we have become perhaps over conscientious about our language. And I'm thinking about instances like the debacle around American dirt. Um, that's, that was just one instance um, that that, I suppose, you could construe as a kind of silencing uh, when a writer is essentially shoved off um, off, and into um, kind of oblivion because her, her identity in some way is objectionable. We don't think that it's the right person to tell the story. And I wonder what you made of that episodes, episodes like it and the lessons that we as writers and maybe also by extension publishers ought to extract from these moments where where there's um, there's a real calling out or a canceling um, of of a writer for one of one reason or another. I mean, the American Dirt incident happened after the book had gone to press, but I do talk about the issue that it raises of you know what what people call cultural appropriation or the idea that a writer who does not themselves come from a particular background, decides to tell a story of people from that background, the case of American Dirt, and a, a white writer with a Puerto Rican grandmother, but who, who told a story about an undocumented Mexican immigrant. And it was a, 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 a major book. Uh, she had all sorts of blurbers. It was a big release. And she was hammered by Latinx writers who argued that she had no business writing this story and in some instances faulted the way that she uh, portrayed her characters and the depiction that she gave of the culture that she was writing about. And she you know, responded that she had done a great deal of research and there were many people who stood by the book as a, a just riveting uh, page turner and a, a very moving account of a community and an experience that doesn't get enough attention. And to me, the the issues that raised are, are really inextricably linked with the barriers that have faced writers of color as they have sought opportunities to be published and gain the support of the publishing and entertainment industries for their stories. And, uh, you know, historically, if you look and there are some tabulations of this, although they're really incomplete. Uh, in, in the children's book area, there is an annual report that is published about how many stories there are by authors of color about characters of color. And the numbers are beginning to climb up, but they have lagged very far behind the representation of these communities within 
American society. And so there is a systemic pattern of exclusion that has affected these writers. And I think it's a very legitimate complaint. And I also view it as a free expression issue. I talk in the book about how the obstacles that stand in the way of people from particular backgrounds being able to participate fully in our discourse, whether that's in journalism, uh, in book publishing, uh, in magazine writing, in entertainment, those are to me, uh, stand in the way of free expression. If we believe that free expression ought to be an open marketplace of ideas, that means everybody, uh, you know, has an opportunity to play into that. And if people do not, or their opportunities are impaired in some way, that to me is a, a constraint on free expression. So, I think that's a major issue uh, that the publishing industry must confront, and it's manifesting itself in this, you know, kind of resentment toward white writers, uh, or, or, you know, and it's not always even a right writer. Sometimes, uh, you know, there are other types of cultural appropriation that people um, accuse uh, writers of, of, of porting over into a culture not their own. And, you know, my view is ultimately writers need to be able to tell whatever stories they want to. I mean, the whole uh, premise of literature and the power of literature is that it's a portal by which you can enter into a life that's not your own and sort of inhabit a world that you would never personally experience and be inside the head of someone who uh, is fundamentally different from you. And the writer is the emissary, the conduit. And I think to, to close off the writer's freedom of imagination and say, oh, you know, you're only, you, you know, you're an Iranian American writer. You may only tell the story of an Iranian American woman immigrant. You can't tell the story of a man. You can't tell the story of somebody who's born here in the United States. Uh, you know, you can't set a story in, France or South Africa, you know, I, I think would be incredibly inhibiting and just impoverish the range of stories available to all of us and make the life of a writer much less interesting and free and deter people from uh, entering into the endeavor. And so I think that's very destructive, but I think those calls, you know, come from a place of great frustration in terms of the failure to confront these barriers. And until there is a more systemic effort to address them, I think these resentments are going to persist and these debates are going to protract. Yeah. I mean, they've reached, as as WIP has every difficult subject, uh, these debates are not new. They've just reached a fever pitch, it seems, in the current climate. Um, and that brings me then to, to think about the, the the section of the book where you're examining the principles of listening and and thinking about what constraints perhaps there ought to be on on free speech or free expression in um, you know in, in instances where it's used or usurped to advance hate speech or in fact um, justify uh, behavior or conduct that is um, hurtful so that's a that's a question is how do we draw that line between you know offering this expansive, robust exchange of ideas and protecting um, protecting groups that have been historically, you know, perhaps particularly vulnerable to, um, to these abuses. Yeah. Look, and 
here, the United States has the most protective standard for hate speech of pretty much any jurisdiction in the world. In Europe and in Canada, you can, and they have banned things like Holocaust denial, uh, the idea of incitement to discrimination. So language that is denigrating against people uh, based on a group identity can be banned and punished by the government. Here under the First Amendment, that's not allowed. That doesn't mean hate speech uh, should be considered acceptable or permissible uh, by any means. That, and, and I think one of the reasons we are in such a fraught moment in terms of free speech is that over the last four years, there has been a erosion of the taboos that used to play some role, never perfect, uh, but in protecting against hateful speech. And we've seen kind of an endorsement of hateful speech at the highest levels of our government from the president who demeans immigrants, women, people of color, uh, people on the basis of religion, uh, even disability. And what that has done uh, in society, I think, is 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 make a lot of us feel, you know, myself included, that we need to do more to protect people uh, from the impact of this hateful speech that is being, uh, you know, spewed from the high, from, from, from people in positions of authority. And so the impulse to then police smaller spaces, whether it's a campus, a classroom, you know, a magazine that you're part of, uh, an organization, and be quite intolerant of noxious speech in those contexts intensifies because it's an effort to sort of correct against something that uh, is seen as, as, as harmful and, and spreading throughout our society as a whole. Now, in terms of dealing with hate speech, uh, I, I think it's a serious issue and I devote a whole chapter to the harms of speech because I think it, it is the case that free speech defenders historically have been a bit reluctant to fully acknowledge those harms for fear that doing so would open the door to censorship and constraints on speech. I think that's the wrong attitude. I think as free speech defenders, we have to own up to the fact that particularly where hateful speech and messages are pervasive, so somebody who's lived their whole life being on the receiving end of racial slurs or being, you know, treated as if they're the hired help at a setting where, uh, you know, they've come as a student or as a professor or, uh, you know, been subject to stereotypes, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, I cite research in the book, uh, you know, can be incredibly damaging psychologically uh, to academic performance and even physiologically. So I think we have to come to grips with that. I call on free speech defenders to fight against hateful speech uh, and hate crimes. But what I don't subscribe to is the idea that we'd be better off if we gave our government greater leeway to ban and punish hateful speech. And I feel like this administration is the perfect illustration of that because if they weren't constrained by the First Amendment you know, and Donald Trump had the leeway to punish hateful speech, you know, what is his idea of hateful speech? It's criticism of him. And so affording him that authority would be 
in, in, to my mind, incredibly dangerous. And, and, you know, people may have a vision of, you know, some magical version, combination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall and Barack Obama, you know, who would adjudicate where the boundary lies in terms of what is hateful speech. But the reality is uh, it, it would be courts and judges and prosecutors and affording them that discretion could be uh, incredibly confining and 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 uh, open the door to misuse. And I, I, in my view, the greater the power that government has to police speech, the more likely that they will use it to serve their own prerogatives. So I'm just very wary of that solution. But I do acknowledge that hate speech poses a serious problem. It was inevitable. We were going to talk about the administration. Uh, the First Amendment, of course, it it applies to government intervention, um, not private platforms like Facebook or Twitter. How do we combat this often, well, it seems to me often purposeful misunderstanding, um, which is effectively being claimed by the right, the white wing um, to somehow, you know, obscure these lines. Um, the, the right to free speech is, it seems to me, the very definition of it seems, um, seems imperiled. Yeah. And look, there are really complex issues that I address in the book uh, about how these platforms now hold dominion over such large swaths of our discourse. You know, they roll up into one, the functions that, you know, used to be performed by newspapers, magazines, town meetings, you know, family photo albums, coffee clutches, you know, telephone calls, I mean, all these things that we used to do and vehicles for expression, you know, now have been kind of bound together in Facebook and, and Twitter and a few other platforms. And overwhelmingly, especially young people are getting nearly all of their news through those platforms. And we've seen the weaponization of speech in, you know, in many different categories, whether it's terrorist recruitment, uh, conspiracy theories like QAnon uh, spreading, uh, fake news and false information about COVID-19, uh, quackery, spurious cures, uh, in terms of the election, the level of disinformation that uh, is escalating right now, it poses to my mind, I think a very direct threat to our democracy. You know, I see a sort of a sowing of, of mistrust uh, in society writ large. And so, the idea that free speech or concerns are implicated in relation to these platforms, I think, is absolutely legitimate. And you're right that they are not subject to the First Amendment, uh, that that protects us only against encroachments on free speech by, by government. And one of the premises of my book that I, you know, I talk about throughout is that while Americans are used to reflexively thinking of the First Amendment when you bring up free speech, you, know, you sort of say free speech and an American says, oh, First Amendment. And, you know, the notion there is so that we can rely on lawyers and courts to figure out this stuff for us. And yet with so many of the controversies that we're talking about right now, whether it's, you know, what, what, whether a fake uh, or doctored video of Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden should be taken off Facebook or whether a, uh, a student should be punished for something that they say in class or a poster that they put up in the dorm room that is 
offensive. And these are issues that don't implicate government action at all. And yet they are governing, you know, what can and can't be said in society, what book you can publish that doesn't involve uh, state action. And so the First Amendment doesn't have any answers for us. And that's why I sort of have issued this call to action for us as citizens or saying, actually, you know, the courts have their part. And I don't want to underplay that because there are issues. You know, this John Bolton book uh, is one that has arisen uh, just today uh, where we need to guard against government overreach in uh, monitoring and, and, and muzzling speech. But that that's not going to be enough to keep our free speech protections and civic discourse robust and open. We have to take action as individuals. I, I would like you to talk more, though, about social media and, and what the parameters ought to be, um, or, you know, as you see it, Facebook and Twitter and, and the various platforms. Are they, are they just passive um, figures in this conversation? Are they just a platform? Um, do you see them as having of needing to have a greater a more proactive role in defining some of these parameters for us yeah look i don't think they're just neutral sort of blank canvases uh it's 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 uh they definitely are not and it's because while they may be open to all sorts of user content the structure of their business models hinges on algorithms that privilege certain kinds of communication. And very often it's the most outlandish, uh, incendiary, engaging material that they feed off of. And, you know, that's why QAnon conspiracy theories sort of flourish online. And they also have a structure whereby you can create all sorts of private channels. They're like deep caves that are dug, uh, you know, into our discourse where people are communicating and in some cases conspiring outside of public view. And it's not that great marketplace of ideas that we think of where, you know, uh, what you say is subject to counter speech and, and sees the light of day. And there's an opportunity to respond to something that's published in uh, a newspaper or, or shout it out on a town square when you're able to communicate with people all over the world in these very stealthy channels, you know, what we've seen is that some really noxious ideas can gain enormous traction with very little opportunity for other sources of contrary information to penetrate. I mean, one of the, you know, we something we're dealing with right now at PEN America in relation to the election, you know, it's going to be an election cycle like no other. And we're talking to media outlets about how they're going to report on an election night where we're not going to, you know, very likely not going to have results. You know, we're all used to sort of you wake up or you stay up late at night because uh, you want all the races to be called this time around because of mail-in ballots. They won't be able to call the races. And so, you know, those mainstream news outlets have important work to do to behave responsibly in that in this context, but the fact is that there's a, a, a substantial segment of the population that no longer relies on those information sources and gets all of their uh, news and, and data from social media and from channels that are uh, ex exclusive and that uh, have an, a, a very strong ideological orientation. So 
My view is uh, we have to see these platforms for what they are. They exercise tremendous control over our discourse with serious implications for public health, democracy, and all sorts of other social goods. I think they that we see that they are, and I believe they will continue to become much more aggressive in policing content. The users are demanding it. Advertisers are demanding it. And I think increasingly we will see regulation. It, it's, uh, you know, there's more and more bipartisan consensus on this. The Congress has become much more educated on these issues for years. They were sort of stymied by uh, the, the technical in- intricacies, but they finally begun to climb up the learning curve. And so I think we'll see this much more aggressive policing of content. And in my view, as an advocate of free expression, the key is that that be accompanied by much more robust measures to protect free speech. So that if you, if platforms are much more frequently flagging, demoting, deleting, and disabling content and accounts, if you are a user who believes that your post is legitimate free speech, uh, something that should be allowed to be up there, you need a ready recourse. You need to be able to call a number, get a human being on the line, make your case, have an advocate in your corner so that your speech can be restored in real time. Otherwise, I think you know, putting this power and authority in the hands of social media platforms to regulate in an unfettered way what can and can't be said, you know, poses real risks for free speech. And the other the other issue I would flag is is transparency. And I think that's something where, you know, while I'm generally leery of government regulation of speech, I think uh, there is a role for federal action to force the platforms to be more transparent in terms of the types of content that they are both elevating and taking down, because we need to understand that in order to frame sound policy, both, uh, you know, at the, at the at the level of government and uh, as individuals. I have a question from one of um, the viewers, because they are out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, which ties in perhaps to this or, you know, takes us into a a deeper examination of this topic is the question is whether conservatives, conservative critics have a point on cancel culture. Um, You know, what, what's your, what's your opinion of that? Yeah. I mean, look, I think the term cancel culture is used so elastically as to be almost useless. I mean, it's everything from kind of a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby, where I think, you know, most of us could agree, look, these people have committed egregious uh, criminal conduct and, uh, you know, it, it, it's perfectly fair uh, perhaps not to want to uh, associate with them or watch their movies or television shows to, on the flip side, you know, somebody who makes a bad editorial decision, uh, you know, puts out an ill-considered tweet you know, says something questionable in the classroom and is confronted with calls for discipline, uh, removal, firing. I mean, there's an incident at Skidmore College that we were dealing with this week where a professor attended a rally on behalf of the police. And it's not even clear that he he wasn't a participant in the rally. Uh, He may have just been sort of an onlooker checking out what was going on, but he was seen there. And there's now 
a, a movement to boycott his classes, and there have been calls by students to get him fired from his position at the university. And the university sort of issued this rather tepid statement in response, which we criticized. And, you know, I think when it comes to that kind of thing, that, you know, that's where, to me, cancel culture uh, really can go too far. And I spell out in the book, I have a whole kind of chapter uh, devoted to sort of conscionable call-outs, because I think there is a place, absolutely, for rejecting and speaking out against noxious expression. And, you know, we, we talked a few minutes ago about hateful speech. And when someone uses a racial slur or says something that is degrading, it is important to speak out. Uh, it's important that people who are victimized by that feel the sense of support. It's important that the speaker here back that this is not acceptable, that people are not just going to be silent and look the other way. But it depends on what the, the right way to do it depends on the circumstances. There are some circumstances where you could do what, what I refer to in the book. I mean, it's not an original coinage as a calling in, which is essentially uh, approaching someone privately to say, hey, you know, your phrasing in the email was sort of problematic. It might be seen as dismissive to uh, women or to a particular community. You might want to consider rewording that or you know, your last tweet, uh, you know, really rubbed me the wrong way. And here's why. And, you know, if you think the person might be receptive, if they're not a serial offender, if you believe the offense was unintentional, unintentional, that call in can be a much more effective, less confrontational way to respond that doesn't put the person into a defensive crouch. You know, there are other situations where I think a public call out is warranted and where even canceling somebody is warranted. But we've gotten into kind of a climate where uh, in, in some in the minds of some, it's sort of this the, the answer to all noxious speech is that the person becomes sort of permanently untouchable. And, you know, we also don't have good ways of over time, you know, even if, if the offense uh, is relatively minor, you know, it can carry this lasting stigma. It's not like, you know, you're, you're canceled for six months and then it expires and you're back in good graces. It can be sometimes difficult to work your way back. Yes. Yes. No, you talk about these um, instances of, it's a kind of radical punishing, I think you call it. Um, I'm forgetting the exact phrasing, but these almost ritualized, um, you know, um, ostracizing, you know, of a, of a member of the tribe and, and the way back is, is completely foreclosed then um, to the offending party. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there is this performative aspect to it, you know, where, you know, I think particularly kind of at a moment where we are, you know, amidst a very important reckoning on issues of race, you know, any questioning, you know, calling, casting into doubt whether, defunding the police is the right policy or, you know, asking a question about affirmative action can, you know, be construed as running counter to the new norms that we are driving toward as a society. And I, I think that's, that's dangerous. I think we need room for people to ask questions and for our policy solutions to be debated. And as important as it is that we do, kind of force our way through to the next levels of 
anti-racism and equity and inclusion. I don't think that needs to or should imply that, uh, you know, certain discourse is, is completely off limits or that people will be ostracized for uh, raising particular points. Look, there's some ideas that I think we could all agree, you know, really have sort of no place in the, you know, in, in our modern conversation, if it's, uh, you know, uh, ideals of racial supremacy. But, you know, there are other things I talk in the book about, you know, subjects that are difficult to discuss, including, uh, you know, di- racial differences when it comes to medicine. You know, there, there's a kind of real leeriness to even probe those questions because of, you know, where it can go and sort of the history of how those ideas have been misused. And I think that caution is well-founded, but I also point to some of the, you know, very tangible medical reasons why these lines of inquiry should not be off limits and to some scientists and doctors who have found ways to talk about even these very sensitive topics uh, kind of carefully and in ways that make clear that they reject, uh, you know, racist or, or, or bigoted theories. And I think it's, it's, it's important to try to hold open the space for those kinds of discussions. So everything we're talking about, I, I just, ima- I'm, I'm imagining the election as we're moving closer and closer to that date and then the ensuing scenario you're, you're alluding it to it um, a bit earlier but how do these issues um, transforming or intensifying as we head into and past the election um, what what do you see on the horizon yeah look I think we're in a very dangerous moment because we have allowed the role of facts and truth in our discourse to substantially erode. And, you know, it began, I think, in earnest, uh, or you know, intensified around the time of the 2016 election with the rise of fake news and recognition of the levels of manipulation uh, and disinformation that were spreading on social media. And I think, you know, what has now settled in is just this, you know, immense distrust. Uh, I mean, I was reading something this morning, um, you know, the head of the CDC said masks may be more effective than a vaccine. And, you know, just my immediate thought was, uh, you know, I don't know if that's like a ridiculous statement or if maybe there's you know, he's actually, there's actually a point that he's making that has some validity. And I'm just going to have to wait to see if this is something that serious scientists elsewhere, you know, repeat or respond to. Like the fact that the head of the CDC said it means nothing. And, you know, that's kind of where we are. Uh, You know, and someone else told a story of, you know, being in an ER uh, just in the last few days and asking a question about, you know, if, can you still be contagious with COVID after five weeks? And the ER doctor said, you know, well, you know, the CDC says X, but I don't believe the CDC. And so I think we're at a very dangerous moment when it comes to the election uh, and the results, you know, who are we going to believe if it's disputed and it will be disputed. And, you know, we don't have you know, we're used to having authoritative sources in government and in the courts that we can turn to to resolve these things. And it's very hard to 
think about, you know, I think there's nobody really in that position. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's a pretty kind of frightening, precarious moment where I think our, our grip on truth has really been loosened. I think a lot of people are alarmed about it and recognize that that's been a systemic effort. I think it relates to the president's uh, campaign to discredit journalism uh, and and characterize reporters and media outlets as an enemy of the American people. I think that, you know, skepticism has taken hold and that, you know, sources like the New York Times that I certainly regard as authoritative, uh, you know, aren't looked at that way by significant swaths of the population. So, I do think it's a it's a dangerous moment. My hope is that the you know people's commitment to get to the polls you know is 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 out of a recognition that we have to turn this around and that we're we're successful in doing that. And we haven't talked that much about the press and um, the erosion of um, you know the that mechanism in a sense um, the. Uh, the slow bleeding of the local presses, the, the local publications. Um, could you talk a little bit also about journalism and what role it should play in, um, in not just the election, but in the preservation of the very notion of truth? Yeah, look, it's extremely important. And we, we did a big report that we released late last year uh, called losing the news that is about the crisis in local news across the country, which, you know, we framed as a crisis of democracy because, you know, and and the statistics are are bleak. There's been a $30 billion loss of revenue in the local news industry. And that's because advertising monies that used to go for classified and, you know, those big display ads, full page ads and newspapers now have all migrated online and most news content is available for free on social media. And so when you see an article via Facebook, uh, you know, the Seattle uh, uh, post-intelligencer doesn't get uh, a remittance back from that. And so these outlets are really suffering. More than 20% have closed their doors and the remainder newsrooms have been slashed by an average of 50%. And what you see is that, you know, there's just no one there to hold local officials accountable, whether it's an issue of pollution or corruption in a health department or an educational issue. The the investigative reporters and beat reporters who were holding officials' feet to the fire just aren't there uh, and are much fewer in number. And the COVID crisis, I mean, it's kind of interesting because the COVID crisis actually uh, has sparked a greater appreciation of this uh, unfolding sort of slow motion uh, drying up of local news uh, as a serious problem. And, you know, we, when we issued the report, we sort of thought, well, it's not until there's a new, there'll be a new Congress that anybody in Washington will take an interest in this. But actually that hasn't been true because uh, amid COVID, local news outlets have been so important in terms of telling people what the rules and regulations are, where you can get tested, uh, you know, how to, you know, where you can get basic services, uh, uh, where they're accessible within the community. And so the role of local news has been underscored and there is a lot more now concern and consternation and and sort of a, a serious discussion in Washington about how to address this. I mean, there's no silver bullet solution, but it has 
catalyze greater awareness of the crisis. So I, I'm somewhat more hopeful for some movement on this. But it, uh, you know, and the other, you know, the other thing is local news is the most trusted news. So the distrust that has been sown, you know, that has been sown deliberately uh, by this White House, but that also you know, is partially a product of some of the ways in which news have, has evolved. Uh, the fact that our, our news outlets are more ideologically polarized, the rise of cable news, which, you know, I think of it not as news, but as kind of talk television, the equivalent of talk radio, where so much of what uh, sort of is positioned as, as news is, are really just talking heads opining with very little original reporting uh, being offered. And yet there's a blurring of the lines between that and, you know, actual hard hitting news reporting. And I think that has undercut the the reputation and the standing of news in the minds of uh, many in the audience. And so, I, you know, I think there are some ways in which uh, the news industry itself, you know, bears a, a portion of the responsibility for this this discrediting and the distrust that has arisen but local news sort of stands out as 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 the most trusted channel i have a, another question from a viewer um that i wanted to get to as many as we could what i'm i'm being asked to ask you what would you do about um Quainon? well you know, it's really hard. I think it's 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 a positive step that Facebook is taking action supposedly to try to root out these uh, communities online where the conspiracy theory is spreading. I I have a concern though that they typically take action only when somebody reports a community and they don't generally, particularly in these private communities, they don't generally sort of snoop in to look at, uh, you know, what is being said and shared. And, you know, there, there's some good reasons for that, but, uh, you know, it, it also just may mean that the action that they've taken is, is a tiny tip of the iceberg. And, you know, I think this, this is really alarming. I think people have a role, uh, in relation to those in their own lives who are spreading and subscribing to disinformation and conspiracy theories. We actually just put out a sort of tip sheet, last week at PEN America about how to talk about disinformation to sort of your, your great uncle uh, or, or your neighbor, uh, you know, where it's sort of awkward, but you see that they have posted something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram that you know or suspect is bogus. And we try to outline kind of systematically how you can engage in that conversation. And like the fact is as citizens, we have to do it. I mean, nobody yeah. is going to bring reason uh, uh, to these people if it's not their own family members uh, and friends and neighbors. So, you know, I hope some of the principles in the book about kind of how to have these conversations across difference can help people feel a sense of confidence in in, in bringing up what is a, a tough conversation because, you know, it, it, it could get contentious. And so, uh, you know, I think we need to equip people to to broach it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I took away very strongly from your book and why I will be teaching it and, and referring to it myself is it, it's so, so very practical and it's down to those conversations on Facebook and those posts, those awkward moments around, you know, the dinner table or the classroom, um, 
you know, we don't have classrooms anymore, but our Zoom conversations with our students. And it's an issue. I mean, there's special issues in the virtual classroom. You know, I think in terms of the barriers to participation and who feels comfortable. You know, I noticed this in, in a lot of our discussions that there's a kind of, um, you know, it sort of takes more to take the floor in a Zoom conversation. You don't have the, the, the cues and the kind of body language and, you know, the ability to sort of see that a couple of people probably agree with what it is that you're going to say. So you feel empowered to speak out. And, you know, a lot of that is missing. And I, 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 I do worry about who is shut out of the conversation, uh, you know, in this virtual world and in whether it's school rooms, uh, classrooms, uh, college classrooms or, or beyond. Yes, it, it is not. Um, <laughs> it's not a native platform to any of us. And it does in some ways exaggerate or, um, you know, just further complicate our interactions with one another. As much as it, it allows them to still happen, like this conversation, um, very grateful that we could meet this way. But it's so true. Um, there are also terrible drawbacks in this. So again, thank you so much, Suzanne. Um, this has been a really edifying conversation. And I hope someday we'll be able to welcome you into our city of San Francisco in person under blue skies, I hope. Um, and thank you for your book. Thank you so much for your book. That's it for today's program. Um, I could definitely talk much longer, but our time's up. Um, again, a reminder that Suzanne Nozzle's book, Dare to Speak, is now available wherever books are sold. I encourage you to purchase a copy. I also encourage you to continue to follow the Commonwealth Club, which has just a wealth of programming every day. Uh, you can visit Commonwealth Club at www w.commonwealthclub.org and follow all the upcoming events. I am Jasmine Darznick and this virtual Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.